Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. Welcome back to the Data Stack Show. Costas, I'm so excited. We are talking with Pardis, who has been part of data science teams at some really big companies. So a, a big, a huge retail provider in India, Twitter and the social networking space. And she recently started her own company in the data collaboration space. And I am really excited because I don't think we've covered data collaboration or data sharing, which is sort of, you know, some sort of data transaction between two companies in detail. And so I actually want to talk with Pardis about how big that world is. I've done some of that in the past, actually. You know, of course, I've gotten weird with advertising data and marketing. <laughs> you know, but that's just one slice of it. And I think this is actually a much, much larger footprint of companies doing it than we probably even think. And so that's what I'm going to ask. How about you? So Eric, like from what I understand, when we click that button that says, do not sell my data, it's like they, they should say, do not sell my data to Eric specifically, right? Like that's exactly what was happening. You are that person. Like that's I, the person. Yeah, I, ha I was in a former life. Yeah. I was in a former life. Yes. But now like you are in, you know, like the path of light. That's right? exactly. Okay, yes, good. The light. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, but I don't know. Maybe I'll have to pay for those sins one day. Getting weird with yeah. people's data rarely leads to good outcome. Yeah. I, I can guarantee to everyone you are reformed. Like you are, you know, you are like a good citizen today. You're yes. not doing that stuff anymore. Like, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm also like very excited that we have like parties on the show. I know her like for a while now. And she's like an amazing person outside of like, okay, like the, the problems or like the technical solutions that she's going after. She also has like a very interesting uh, journey, like with starting a company. And I'd love to learn more about that. I'd love to hear like her experience and what made her do this and uh, we'll take it from there and uh, of course like we are going to also ask like more technical questions and more also like product related questions indeed well let's dig in with parties yeah let's do it parties welcome to the data stack show we are so excited to chat with you thank you eric thanks for having me on the show i'm excited to be here very cool well let's start where we always do so give us your background how did you get into data did you start working on data in school after school and sort of what's your journey been like definitely so i did my undergrad in software engineering at the time you know in high school and in elementary school kind of was super interested about you know how the internet worked and i thought it was super fascinating and you know, wanted uh, a degree where like, or a program where I could learn more about how, you know, computers are connected to each other and you could uh, share information in that way. And so 
wasn't a, a difficult decision. And then in the ECE program that I was in, uh, we also had this robotics kind of, you know, team. Uh, I would always pass by in the room where they were testing out these robots. And so I started getting interested in have AI, smart software, and things like that. And so thought the evolution of like just regular software is, you know, smart software. And so started reading up on AI, took some courses, started with reinforcement learning, and then actually did a master's in AI where I learned more about more things and deep learning and just machine learning algorithms and stuff like that. And then from there, I moved into a, you know, as, as I was getting more interested into like ML and I'm trying to, you know, as we were comparing these various methods to train models, I got into a lot of math and I thought, wow, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be nice to have like a math degree? And I wasn't really ready to commit to a PhD at that point, but I started to apply to uh, a couple of master's programs in math and applied math. And uh, I got into this program, started doing some of what I wanted to do, which was work on some of the theoretical foundations of these ML models. But then I met this professor and he told me all about his work on social networks and graph theory and kind of changed uh, what I was working on and got into a lot of that, which was super fascinating. And at the same time, I started taking some courses in the MBA department. My school was super entrepreneurial and kind of pushing everyone to go and, you know, start a company. And that's where the you know, the world is going and that's how you should get your job and things like that. And so, which was awesome. And I started taking some MBA courses and in the MBA department, there was this magazine uh, that I picked up one day, marketing magazine. And they talked about, you know, your area of interest. Um, I was going to say, this is, we're, we're getting into very trepidatious waters here, but I like it. Let's keep going. Yeah. And they were... They did a profile on Hillary Mason and, uh, you know, the work she was doing in Bitly. I then went on, you know, Google searched, okay, and then saw some of her videos talking about writing Hadoop jobs and things like that. And I was like, this is so cool. You know, it's a kind of, you know, all the things that I've learned kind of coming into one place in this kind of type of job. And so I started looking for, for that sort of thing. And luckily, I found this uh, really early stage startup. They were looking for their first data person. And they were doing retail analytics and building kind of an AI platform, analytics platform for retailers online and offline. And I got to work on super interesting problems. And I would say kind of the rest is history, but that's kind of the path to data science. Very cool. Now, I, I have a question. So I want to talk about what you're doing today, but let's just take a brief detour. So you were doing data science, you know, sort of in the retail space and then later in the social networking space. 
before it was as hot of a news item as it is today, right? And of course, AI is sort of the, you know, LLMs are creating a huge amount of news, you know, and, and everyone's talking about it. But back then, to your point, it was data science, it was machine learning, right? I mean, maybe some people called it AI. Can you just talk about, you know, you worked in it for years, sort of before it was as crazy as it is now, before it hit fever pitch. And so can you just provide us some perspective on that? You know, is it, is, has that much changed actually, or is it just sort of the next manifestation of things that have been happening for a long time? Totally. I think it was around uh, 2010 and maybe a little earlier when I started to, you know, get into AI and, and things like that. I would say it was already kind of becoming very, you know, interesting topic. A lot of people were talking about it. There were professors in University of Alberta, University of Montreal, and then of course, Stanford and Berkeley, a lot and MIT, a lot of interesting stuff happening. And I was following all of these kind of professors at these places and following their research, their students' research. And so I would say even at that time, uh, it was pretty hot and, you know, deep networks were uh, gaining a lot of attention. Uh, sparse learning at the time was uh, super, uh, you know, all the papers in this area would get thousands of referen uh, references and things like that. So I would say uh, even at that time, I, I was kind of following the crowd to some extent. <laughs> I can't get too much credit. But in terms of like how it has changed, I would say it's definitely much more part of the public kind of, you know, conversation today than it was at that time when at that time, you know, in the university was a huge deal, but right. maybe outside you needed to go through, right. uh, go talk about more detail. Whereas right now, you know, you might go out with some friends and they're in other industries and they will ask, hey, you know, tell me more about chat GPT and like, how does it work and things like that. So definitely more of the public conversation today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's a helpful perspective because I agree. I think a lot of times news cycles can make things feel very new. But these are things that have been around for a long time. It's just that now maybe like your mom is texting you, have you heard of ChatGPT with exactly. three questions? Yeah. You know, and that's that just makes it feel a little bit closer to home. Uh, For sure, yeah. And I guess, you know, this kind of textual interface, the ability of, you know, reaching more people, making it more accessible has really helped, you know, everyone kind of feel the magic of AI. Right. As opposed to like having to have a pretty significant amount of domain knowledge in order to see the magic. Totally. And, you know, like Google has been doing this forever, you know, with search and, and things like that. But, you know, it's, it's really, it has now that people are seeing, really feeling the magic or, or things like that, which is really interesting. 
and nice. I mean, I'm definitely happy uh, to see AI, uh, you know, being talked about all the time. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you for indulging my little sort of his historical AI interlude. What are you doing today? So you've done a huge amount of work at, you know, at multiple different types of companies working on data science, AI stuff. But you recently founded a company, which congratulations is very exciting. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. So I started General Folders because, you know, I have seen this recurring problem in every single job I've had. And up until I would say my last job, I didn't really, you know, think that this should really be a tool I can buy because up until that point, I wasn't responsible for buying and making infrared decisions. And so at my last job, it was really my responsibility to think about, okay, how can we make our team more efficient? How can we make our data more secure? How can we drive down the cost of managing this infra, you know, and build things faster and things like that with, you know, decisions that we make in terms of what we buy, what we decide to build and invest in, how we collaborate with engineering and DevOps and uh, some of the other teams to like build these things and connect these things together. And so... I think that was an interesting role to have because now I could see that, okay, this is something that needs to turn into a company. And so I was really looking for people looking for ideas to tell them, hey, you know, this is something I want. I don't see it on the market. Can you build it? And at that point, I actually, when I left the company, I had a couple of ideas for things to build. And this seemed like something where, you know, you're managing company, other companies' data. It seems like, okay, initially, it's a harder thing to build. There's more kind of things that you need to pay attention to, more infra that you need to build to make something that like this work well. But I thought out of all the other things, this is something where I truly believe that the, you know, need exists. And it's something that I think me and later as a team, we can sell better. And so that's why I kind of, you know, started building this and started talking to a lot of people from various industries just to make sure that this is not just something that I have been seeing all the time, but people are seeing this across various industries and in various roles and things like that. And so, yeah, I can talk about that problem as well. Yeah. Well, let's, I'd love to zoom. Well, actually, why don't we do this? In just a couple of sentences, describe what general folders does or sort of like the mission of the company, just a sort of level set, like at the simplest level. Totally. I would start at the highest level. General Folders is to uh, is a tool to make business collaboration easy and secure. 
One very important aspect of business collaboration and partnerships is data transfer and data collaboration. And so every time you sign a contract with another company, there's always an aspect of data sharing that happens. And, you know, you notice this when you become responsible for all the data for the company and you're like, oh, wow, every time we signed a contract, there was this aspect of it that we needed to pay attention to. And so at the highest level, this is what General Folders makes easy and secure. That's the mission of the company. I love it. Let's talk about data collaboration or data sharing, maybe could be a term or data transfer. There's probably a bunch of different, you know, modes in which this actually occurs. You know, sort of one directional, bi-directional. But how, I just love to talk about, I don't even, Costas, have we even talked about this on the show? Maybe Brooks has an encyclopedic knowledge of the show catalog, but I don't know if we've ever actually talked about sort of two businesses sharing data and dug into that um, on the show. So I'd love to just talk about how big of a footprint does that have among businesses? Because I think, you know, I have done some of this in past roles and it's a way larger world than I ever would have imagined. You know, it's almost like sort of looking at, you know, the ocean and then putting your head, you know, under and seeing how big the coral reef is. It's like, whoa, there's way more here than I ever would have thought happening under the surface, right? And there's all sorts of crazy ways that companies share data. Absolutely. And you know, part of the reason why I think when you look online, it's hard to say, okay, how big is this market? Because a lot of the work that happens, I think one of the uh, investors I was talking to kind of, you know, had a word for this, said, this is gray area. And what that means is that uh, a lot of the work that happens in this area is kind of, you know, do it yourself. So companies just, you know, the moment they see some a problem like this, they start building some uh, ad hoc solutions. A lot of times as a company, you might not even know how big of, uh, you know, how big this is going to become. What type of headache is it going to cause you down the line? And it was the same for us. Like, you know, we started working with, let's say, a hospital, started sending data initially, and then this problem became just, they had more requests, they, you know, the uh, type of contract we had with them changed over time. Now we needed to change the pipeline. We didn't have really, for some of these places, we didn't have uh, a bigger team to work with. So there was only one person. They weren't necessarily well-versed in like helping us manage these pipelines or things like that, which is, uh, you know, completely okay. But it was causing so much problems for us to fulfill what we had promised to in these contracts. And so, yeah, I think a a bit of a challenge in actually, you know, uh, calculating the size of the problem is most people don't even know how big of a problem this is, even inside their own company, and only realize it when, you know, you have a data team that's responsible for all the data in the company when you realize, wow, you know, the, there's so much of this type of activity happening. Yeah. And so you mentioned one 
example, which let's just say, you know, you're sort of performing some sort of healthcare service or you're a software provider that provides some sort of software in a healthcare context that needs to be sort of rolled up into a larger hospital system. Maybe it's a subsidiary, whatever the context is, right? And so you have some sort of data that needs to get, you know, rolled up to, into a larger entity and, and shared or something. So that could be one context. Another context that comes to mind is, let's say you're like a payment processor that processes transactions or some sort of financial information on behalf of sort of maybe like an end user facing application, right? Where users are interacting with it, but then you need some sort of backend service provider, right? Huge. That's, I mean, a huge market for that, right? And so you have data transfer between two businesses in that context. But what are just a couple of others? Because I think one thing that's really interesting to me about the nature of this problem is that it's so varied. I mean, we've talked about healthcare data and we've talked about financial data, right? I mean, two crazy realms in and of themselves, but you know, I think there are probably hundreds more. Definitely. So those two are are super important, especially because the data in this space is very regulated. Security and privacy are extremely important in those two spaces. So definitely way more care and you know, more modern approaches for data transfer are absolutely needed in those spaces. However, there's just so much uh, happening elsewhere where uh, another interesting one uh, that I've encountered uh, is, you know, we were working with companies that would provide data for, let's say, uh, we wanted to find out where to build the next clinic. So we needed data on all the clinics in a certain city or state or country. And, you know, and the types of kind of demographics in those areas. And so you go to a data marketplace, you want to buy data, you want to explore that data. And finally, you want uh, to transfer that data to your warehouse. None of those steps are really, have, you know, there's no, not really a great tool uh, for those steps. Of course, and even the past year uh, and in recent years, a lot of major cloud service providers have been providing really good kind of services in this area. But, you know, we for sure have not really had that, like even in the, in my last role where we were seeing, you know, a lot of Excel sheets getting sent via email and some of the procurement kind of process for us getting to that data was just took forever, you know, many months. So that's one. Uh, another one that I'm particularly interested in is kind of working with a lot of AI companies uh, I really like to work with these companies because I feel like, you know, uh, we there, there's a lot to talk about. And I also can get a lot, especially in these earlier stages of a company, have get their help in evolving the product as well. But AI companies kind of need their customers' data to kind of build the models. And usually, you know, they all have various ways. Uh, if you go on their website, they have different ways that they allow uh, for companies to, you know, deploy. Um, and, but probably a lot of them will prefer SaaS deployment, you know, forever, you know, software uh, that was deployed with this approach is, you know, more efficient, it's easier, but it's especially 
for AI and kind of some of these because you you want hardware optimization. There's that aspect to it as well, where it kind of makes some sense to like bring the data to their own kind of warehouse and where they are building and training these models. And so they want to move data to their warehouse. Um, and it's extremely important for them for these pipelines to be reliable. So what they do is they kind of end up managing these end-to-end pipelines, asking for their customers' credentials, connecting to their warehouse, and bringing the data in. And so what we want to be able to do is to tell these kind of customers, hey, hey, we can manage these pipelines for you. We can monitor it. We're going to, uh, you know, no matter what your stack, what your customer stack, we will be able to offer this stack agnostic solution and monitoring. Um, and also add on some additional kind of features that I think are extremely important, which is like data validation on both sides. You know, so many times customers will send mistakenly PII or PHI that, you know, they weren't supposed to send. And these are like really simple kind of uh, validation steps that you can do to just avoid any of that sort of activity happening between companies. Mm. I love it. Okay. I have a question and this is actually for you and for Costas. Okay. And I'm going to ask this question by sort of giving you three scenarios of data sharing. And then I'll, and then I'll pose the question. So this is a group question. I love this. We don't do this enough, Costas. I agree. So scenario number one, and let's file this under sort of like primarily infrastructure. So you have, let's use the the example of a company, you know, maybe two companies have a partnership or, you know, maybe it's a company who has a customer and they need to transfer data to that customer, right? And it's primarily an infrastructure question, right? Is this a situation where it's a pipeline question? I think parties, you said that well, right? It's, I mean, it's a question of pipelines, you know? Do we just give you credits to our database? Like, hopefully not. So, okay, so someone's running pipelines, which means that I have to send data, you need to receive that data, and it creates a host of infrastructure issues around scheduling, pipelines, differences in infrastructure, validation, and all that sort of stuff, right? Yes. But I, you're, you know, you're my customer, and so it's really just a question of managing infrastructure and how do I get this data to you, right? In the middle, let's talk about maybe a clean room or the concept of a clean room, which is where two companies have data that they want to share, but they, you know, there's PII or PHI. There's some sort of benefit to gain between sort of joining some aspects of this data set, but it needs to happen in a sort of ag agnostic environment where, you know, it's impossible for either side to sort of get information that they shouldn't have, right? Let's call that the security sort of category, right? So we have like peer infrastructure. How do I get the data to you? We have the security side, which is like, well, we need to share, but like security is sort of our top priority. And then the third scenario is what I'm going to call like trans, like finding like our contractual exchange, right? 
And the example here is something that I did a lot of, which is really crazy to think about, but this is in the advertising space. And so there were certain audiences that these companies had that I wanted to advertise to, but they didn't want to send them through a data brokerage, like a traditional sort of cookie or data brokerage or whatever. And so I literally just sent them a check and said, you know, send me some screenshots or a CSV of like, you know, the ad performance or whatever, right? Sort of the most primitive, like really there we're talking about, maybe we can call this one sort of like economic exchange, you know, like right, I'm right. transacting and we, I'm exchanging money and it just happens, so happens that sort of, there's sort of like data, you know, that's sort of governing the terms of the transaction or whatever. Maybe I'm being long-winded, but what I want to ask you and Costas is, which of those categories, infrastructure, security, or economics, is the primary underlying definition of this problem, right? Because like you said early on, Pardis, like, there's some sort of contract that governs data exchange, whether it's official or not, right? And infrastructure and security, I guess maybe a question would be like, are infrastructure and security ways to describe some sort of spoken or unspoken contract? Or is it primarily like a security problem or primarily an infrastructure problem? I would say it's primarily on the infrastructure side. You know, you have a lot of tools kind of right now where and improving every day, kind of creating stack agnostic data transfer between two sources, whether it be kind of just batch data replication, whether it be streaming. And a lot of these problems are actively being worked on by a lot of great companies. And so I, I think the fact that, you know, in 2020, when I was working on this problem at my company, I... I still didn't have a tool to help me was because of that kind of credential management layer where because we're leaving the boundaries of one company, now it's not just an info problem. It's a kind of, you know, how do we manage the security for two parties problem? That was one. And the other is maybe higher up that stack, which is kind of on the application layer side, which is problems of, you know, validation, but then also kind of cost accounting, because now when you have two companies involved, right, who's paying for egress, who's mm. paying for the pipeline, who's paying for any compute that maybe either parties kind of incur through transformations that they want. Not just the, like cost of the transaction. Yes, and the cost of the transaction. So there's all of these bits and pieces uh, that need to be accounted for. And it's not always clear who the motivated party is. And mm. so that's a complexity that's added when there's two parties involved or two or more, right? And so you kind of want a thing that will help you kind of, you know, split the check. Like, and how to do it and be, have some flexibility there where it's not really clear, I, I think, who should pay. And so, yeah, so definitely a, a security problem uh, on one side and, and then 
some little bits and pieces on the application side where it's around costs and uh, data validation and things like that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with all that. Uh, I would add probably like one more dimension to what uh, both of you have said. I think it's primarily like the problem is like primarily driven by market conditions and it's primarily like an economics issue. And what do I mean by that? Okay, is it like it's not like today, it's like the first time in history that we have to share data, right? Like we literally be doing that since the inception of the internet. We had protocols, we had FTP, and we made SFTP because we wanted it to be secure and security was always an issue, right? And at the end, okay, if you want like to be super, super secure, you can always, you know, mail a whole hard disk to the other person, right? <laughs> so why I mean but like market conditions and like a like an economics problem is that when, let's say in the maturity of the market, the problem of like the need to exchange data, okay, becomes important enough that it's actually every detail around like the tra that transaction becomes like important to be figured out, right? And today, for many reasons that we can talk about, obviously like AI is a catalyst for that. Like there is the need for companies, more companies today to share data with other parties, right? As part of like the way that they grow and like the things that they're doing. So we need to formalize that. Like we can't just, it's not like a, you know, a problem anymore that we can just be scrappy and everything is fine. Like what I hear both of you like saying all this time is that you had this problem for like forever, but at the same time, it wasn't that important of a problem for the whole market to try and find a solution and build businesses on top of that and try like to optimize it as much as it's possible. Right? So I think what I find like, I think like very fascinating about today is that we reach that critical point where the markets like demand from our industry to go out there and like find the solutions and turn this into like an, an actual like scalable product, right? So that's my contribution to your question, Eric. I don't know if I helped you, made you any wiser or less wiser, but... No, it's but... interesting. I think, it was, I mean, it was certainly a little bit of a loaded question, but it it's fascinating to think about the friction in transactions, right? And it really sort of crosses all three of those vectors. And I didn't even think about, you know, it's like, well, we're paying for compute, right? And so how much of that are we responsible and, you know, responsible for and how much are you responsible for? And so I love the splitting the check analogy, but yeah, it's a very interesting multidimensional problem. And it seems like the transaction friction and the security piece are really driving a lot of that, right? Like, you know, the, the security breaches today are far more costly than they've ever been. And then of course, both of you said AI is also driving a ton of it. So yeah, super fascinating to sort of be at the, you know, at a critical point for that. So yeah, thank you. That was very helpful. I feel much more educated. You are welcome. That's why we are here. Like both me and Pardis, right? Like to educate you. <laughs> All right, Pardis, I have a question. 
so I was hearing like all this time, like talking about like the problems that you are excited about and actually like super exciting, excited to the point where you started the company. But I keep like hearing about like two things. Okay. Like one thing is, let's say the technical side of things, which has to do with, yeah, like how we move the data around and how we can have like, you know, like specific guarantees around that and security and like all these things that we, we touched already. The other thing though, is also like, you talk a lot about what I would call, let's say the product or like the experience, right? That is driven by the need, like the business need, like that these people out there have, right? And you mentioned stuff like, okay, you're having, you're making it like a contract. And part of this contract is like some stuff around the data, right? Or there are some uh, requirements around the data that has to be met, right? All these things are not, I mean, they obviously have, let's say, a technical dimension too, because you have to be able like to automate these processes, but they are primarily driven, let's say, from like a user need, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about that and like describe to us like what like an experience like this looks like, right? Like, let's say I am an AI company and I do need to go to Eric and get his marketing data, right? Behavioral, like user behavioral marketing data, right? Don't have the technology, forget about the technology, right? What, how does this interaction looks like? Like, how do we do it? Definitely. So like as an, you know, AI company, you will have, you're probably like offering some sort of, you know, um, modeling approach that you can help uh, where Eric doesn't have to, as an example, I guess, given uh, some of my experience working at, in FinTech, and one area when you start, move, you know, working directly with customers is the issue of fraud detection. Fraud detection is a super complex problem. It needs so much experience kind of, of you know, just human behavior for you to understand how to solve fraud detection with ML and AI and things like that. And so even what data to collect and how to kind of... Uh, structure that data is just needs a lot of domain expertise. And so there are companies that say, hey, I can build uh, really great fraud detection models that if you know start this financial services company, you can just you know you start using this model. And so like in this case that you know financial services company is now highly motivated to use kind of or try out these kinds of AI platform companies, right? And so now there's a, one initial evaluation phase where even before I sign a contract, I want to transfer some data, see how it works on some of, you know, the past two days of data, try to see, okay, are you guys able to use this tool to train a model to capture at least, you know, 80%, 90% of fraudulent activity and then I can give you more data so you can get higher accuracy on the type of data and, and things like that. So there's evaluation, but then the moment we decide, okay, this is actually working really well, it's way better than something I can build uh, in that amount of time, in, in the amount of time that I have, 
let me kind of sign a contract. I signed a contract. Now I want to send my data on a recurring basis for you all to kind of build that model. And it kind of depends on, you know, my volume of transactions and your need for like how often you need to update the model for us to come up with a sort of cadence at which data should be sent. And so if I'm low volume, I might even not need the model to be trained like uh, even more than once a day. But let's say if I'm very high volume and if the types of stuff that can happen in a day is just too much, I might even need higher cadence or like things like that. So it really depends on the type of business and uh, the size of the business in terms of how often they decide to, you know, set the cadence of these pipelines. But essentially, I think that's the workflow. A hundred percent. And uh, okay. So actually, it's interesting what you said, because you also described like uh, part of another question that I have. So, okay. We have Eric, Eric gives to me his data and I train a model and uh, I have to somehow like expose this model back to him. Right. So there is, let's say that's the, like the input that I need from him and the output of my work. That's what I'm also like getting paid for is for the model. Right. I, I don't think that it makes that much sense right now, like to get into the um, logistics around that, like how you, this model ends up back to Eric and what Eric does with that. Let's consider this like a solved problem, right? But you mentioned, for example, like how often like these data transfers should happen, right? Which means that there is like, it's not a one-time process. It's not like yeah. Eric will send to me a data set, I'll train this and then we say goodbye, right? Like we have to iterate on this thing, which Reminds me of like what like usually like a, pip, a pipeline is supposed to be doing in like data infrastructure. The difference that I see here is that we are talking about usually like when we are talking about like data infra and like pipelines, we are talking always about something internal, right? Like it's my data infrastructure, my pipelines, I run them. And that has like a lot of implications, both in terms of like the governance, but also like the technology itself, right? Like it's a different thing to uh, build like a pipeline that I know exactly where it runs, uh, like uh, even not which data center this thing runs, like the software that we will be building for that, like completely different compared to be, oh, I need now a pipeline that is going to be connecting to entities wherever, right? Without like controlling any, anything of the in between, like it's over like the internet. So from a technical perspective, like what does it mean to establish this relationship between me and Eric and send the data like in a regular pace and like making sure that we have specific guarantees around like the quality, both of the infrastructure and the data itself. Definitely. I can talk a little bit about the initial thing that you were mentioning to how to serve the model back. Ah, usually, yep. mm -hmm. usually these companies just expose the API and, and, you know, so for every new data point, just call the API with the trained model and, and kind of evaluate for that new data point. Let's say whether it's fraud or not or things like that. And so with respect to kind of governance, I think something that's really important to consider about kind of 
you know, one, a tool like general folders and the other like customers of general folders is it's very similar to like every other kind of cloud-based tool. And so, you know, when let's say we sign a contract with any cloud service provider, right? We are, you know, we have some control over, okay, I want to be in this country and I want these particular regions and, and things like that. And then we, okay, sign these contracts on the privacy side, security side, and all of that. And this would be very similar. So when we go into business with any of these customers, they, the two sides already have a business contract. They already have a data contract where one is trusting the other side to manage their data to kind of, you know, follow whatever limitations or requirements or regulations that this certain business has. Um, and so they've already kind of uh, signed that type of contract together. And that's where we go in and kind of try to adhere to those same um, rules. Mm -hmm. There might be cases, though, where the two sides don't have a contract signed. Let's say one side is trying to evaluate the other kind of product. Um, but we have a contract signed with both sides, for example, to set up a third-party place, a trusted place where the two can collaborate. On that front, you know, now we we adhere to whatever requirements there may be. So, hey, I want to be in this country, in this region, on this cloud, or wherever. So very much like all the other kind of data tools will kind of follow those same uh, processes. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And what's like the difference between what you are like having in mind as a solution to this problem compared to, let's say products like the data sharing capabilities that like Snowflake has, right? I mean, they're also trying or they already like succeeded. I don't know exactly like the, how successful it is, but they have like kind of like a marketplace at the end, right? Okay. Because at the end, when you are talking about like uh, the uh, what you are describing, it reminds a lot of, let's say like a two-side marketplace transaction where you are, you know, the broker in between, right? Yeah. You are making it easy for these parties like to transact, right? Regardless of, of Obviously, like in your case, it's not like something that you buy, like you do like in eBay, right? Which is a physical object, it's data, right? So what do you see? Like, how do you see these attempts to solve like a similar problem, right? That's the first question. And then I have like, a, I'll follow up with another one. But let's talk a little bit about like the competition, let's say. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, with... Snowflake, uh, first of all, you know, they've been very public with their data on, you know, this particular business unit for data sharing and data marketplaces. They've released their data and it looks really good. Uh, mm -hmm. I think for me, looking at that, it's actually kind of, you know, confidence building because, you know, this is a company that knows what they're doing. They're, they know their customers. And so for them to be public about this particular business unit and kind of continuing to invest on this side is definitely um, a good sign. 
In terms of like data marketplaces, it's certainly a one-to-many kind of relationship, which I think is very important in like data collaboration in general. Not the main focus for us, I think, early on. We definitely want the one-to-one kind of connections. We really want that type of experience to work on that first, see how that goes. That's one thing. The other is the approach that companies like Snowflake take on the kind of zero ETL side, right? They're saying, hey, don't move data around. You know, there's no need to replicate data from one place to the other. If you're both a customer of Snowflake, we can provide you a view of the data where you have real-time access. You see the exact changes. There's only one copy of the data pretty efficient. Um, From, you know, the perspective of this company, we believe there's all this other needs that are not captured with this particular kind of approach. And although this is super efficient and makes so much sense, and we should be doing this when we can to save the cost, we want to be flexible to offer other ways doing that. And so, yeah, so like, I would say that's how we differentiate just to be more flexible in terms of what is possible. Yep. Yep. No, hundred percent makes sense. Is there anything like, uh, I would say that like a feature of these platforms that you really find interesting and before I'd just like to make it like a little bit easier, uh, for you, like to understand the question, because I think it's like quite bad. I'll give you an example. I always found very fascinating how BigQuery has used the public data sets that they have for marketing purposes, actually, right? So they are like exposing, for example, like the daily GitHub data, which is like a huge data set, right? Yeah. And okay, it's like an amazing way for someone like to get exposed to BigQuery, right? Like I might be looking for something completely like just for the data at the end and like I'll share about BigQuery. So I found like always very interesting and I think like successful this like marketing activity that like BigQuery is doing with data sharing in a way. Is there, but okay, you are much more into that product. So I'd love to hear from you like something that really excites you that someone else has built. I'm definitely very excited about Snowflake. I used the product and bought it at my old company. I, I really like it. I think it's really makes the team quickly become very efficient and kind of independent as well. You know, as a data team, I felt really good to independently manage our infra and move as fast as we needed to. While kind of, you know, it was also possible to manage our costs and we had dashboards and monitoring and all of that to to manage those. So definitely excited about that. I'm trying to think of other products in the data space that I'm kind of very excited. Do you want in particular on uh, in the data collaboration space or? That's it. I think you answered my question, to be honest. 
And um, I would like to close because it's my like last question, and then I have to give the microphone back to Eric with asking the same question, but like for the things that you are building, something that you are really how to say that. Like, I mean, obviously you are like proud for everything that has been built, and I can relate to that myself, but. If there's something like a feature or I don't know, like even something that you've learned by interacting and trying like to solve the problem that I don't has like a special place in your heart or mind, let's say, I'd love to hear that. Like something that was like surprising in a very positive way for you through like this journey of like building and starting a company and trying to solve this particular problem. For sure. I mean, like, I, I can think of so many things. And, you know, one of the things I would say that's kind of about people rather than product, which is, it was just over this journey, ever since I started the company, it's been so heartwarming to see kind of, you know, that I'm able, even pre-product, kind of able to talk to so many people who will give such good feedback and uh, provide help and support in so many different ways, which was just, you know, makes me feel so thankful to be part of this community, to be able to have access to that. So that, I would say, number one, kind of really super interesting and exciting thing that I've experienced. Okay. Uh, you have to choose only one. So you okay. can say it. Yeah. Okay. So that, that definitely. The rest, the, the rest is like a way for us to make sure that you come back because we have to hear. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> that's all from my side. Eric, the microphone is yours again. Yes. Well, we're, we're at the buzzer as we say, but Hardy's, I have a question. I was thinking about how many different contexts you've worked in a similar problem space. You know, so you studied, you know, software engineering, you got into sort of data science type stuff, the mathematics behind that. You did that in several forms at several different companies. You're starting a company that sort of is in a, a related problem space. Now, as a founder, is there sort of a lesson or a principle that you feel like has served you really well throughout all of the contexts or a piece of advice that you've returned to over the past you know, decade or so that has sort of been a theme for you throughout all those different contexts? Um, I wish there was something that I, I knew all along and, you know, there definitely wasn't. I mean... But, you know, there were so many ups and downs, and I'm sure there will be many in, in my future, where something that I've, I would say, learned and, you know, that I think I want to take with me on this journey is, kind of one, put people first, and no matter what happens on the business side or product side or, you know, something doesn't work out. There's ups and downs and all of that, but really put people in relationships first. That's super important. And two, kind of always try to pay attention to yourself as a human. You know, 
exercise, eat well, pay, you know, go out with friends and spend a lot of time with other people. And so, because we need all of that to function well. And so as I'm thinking about how to manage myself and, you know, as I've become a manager of more people to kind of ensure that everyone is have, has a well-rounded lifestyle because it's super important mm. for the long run. Yes, yes. Very wise words. And I think those will certainly serve you well as a founder. Well, Parties, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure. So many things we didn't cover, so we'd love to have you back sometime. Thank you so much. This was so fun. I appreciate you having me on the show. And Costas, this episode with Pardis from General Folders really got me thinking about economics a lot. I mean, I know that sounds weird, mm -hmm. um, but when you think about the idea of two businesses or two entities sort of collaborating around data, whatever that looks like, sharing one way, yeah. bi-directional or whatever, it's a huge infrastructure problem, right? I mean, the fragmentation makes it a nightmare, you know, for anyone who's had to do that, which is really interesting. But the more parties talked about it, the more you realize that it's the fragmentation on the transactional side is actually far worse than it is on the infrastructure side. And so the infrastructure is almost a proxy for sort of the way that companies are trying to interact. And so I guess maybe you think about the Snowflake marketplace as an interesting sort of economic layer on top of their ecosystem that mm -hmm. gives them a lot of market power. But if you actually zoom out and think about the economics of that in an infrastructure agnostic way, that's pretty crazy. So yeah. I'm going to be thinking about that a whole lot. And that's just such a compelling idea in general from parties. So that was my big takeaway. Yeah, 100%. I totally agree with you that there's some very interesting like economic implication in all the stuff that like we discussed about with Pardis. And so that's what I'm going to keep also, to be honest, because it is, let's say, an extremely strong signal that data is turning into actually kind of a commodity. Like we will start like transacting on top of data. I mean, we were doing it already, but it was like more of, let's say, a niche kind of sure. need, right? Like, yeah, financial markets are known for like being ahead huh. of their time in like transacting over data because data is actually like the mold there, right? Sure, sure. Uh, uh, probably something similar might happen already like with like in the medical space, right? But what we actually see here happening is that we are entering this new, how to say that, like era in a way where actually we are going to see a lot of economical activity on top of data. Yeah. Uh, something that is accelerated by um, this whole uh, AI thing that is happening. Thanks. But that's just a catalyst that makes things like go faster. It's not an enabler. Like it was there. People predicted that it will come and it seems that it's coming like faster than we thought. So that's what I keep. And 
I would encourage everyone like to go and like listen to the episode because there are like, I think like some very interesting insights around like what the future will look like. Yeah, we should do a shop talk on that because it's, it, I hadn't thought about this, but you bring up, you know, the fintech industry transacting over data, right? And one thing that's really interesting is that what makes that possible is that you assign value to data that allows for transactions on a very wide scale across a very large number of yes. people in the market. And I didn't even think about this being the beginning of an era where you have all this fragmented data across all this fragmented infrastructure across all these different companies. And beginning to see value being assigned to that, even through the fragmentation, is that's crazy. Brooks, yeah. we should do a shop talk. That's going to be wild. Yeah, 100%. And just like to make something like clear, it's not just like fintech, even like traditional uh, financial markets were doing that. Like if you go and see like the traders in uh, yeah. mm. Mm. Uh, Wall Street, like or these HFT things or like the hedge funds, it's all about data yep. at the end. Because, and that's an interesting conversation I had with someone who came from there. It's not doing that anymore, but like he was saying that, yeah, like the strategies, the algorithms, they all get known at some point. So mm. the all that is left at the end, that it's like consistent, is the data. All right. We're doing uh, it. Okay. It's, it's, yeah. I think we should do definitely like a shop talk and also like maybe like find people like to have like a panel or something like around yeah. that stuff. But before that, everyone should listen to the episode because these are like, well, there's a lot of like discussion around that with partition. Yes. And I got to, come clean on some past sins in terms of data collaboration with advertising data, which honestly yes. makes me feel really clean. So thank you for that opportunity. Yes, you are forgiven. Okay. Thank you, Father. All right. Well, thanks for listening to the Data Stack Show. Definitely listen to this episode. Great one. Subscribe if you haven't. Tell a friend and we'll catch you on the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.